All right, my name is Kelsey Irwin, um, and I have had the opportunity to get to teach here a few times now, so hopefully I look a little familiar to most of you. Um, but actually this morning I woke up and was just sitting in a chair, and then my neck went, so if I look a little stiff, that's why, but I had lots of people bring me gels and Motrin and even a massage gun, so the body of Christ, man, we're, we're going to get through this. Um, I always used to make fun of Bob for being old, and... Natasha was like, yeah, Kelsey, you can't just roll out of bed and think you're going to be okay now. So getting there. But um, we are five weeks into our Body of Christ sermon series. And if you're new here, our fearless leader, Bob, is on um, his sabbatical. And our associate pastor, Justin, has been pouring himself into the interns. And we actually get to hear from them next week. But if you haven't been here, you can always go back and listen online, which I encourage you to do. Um, But we're looking at Christ's physicality, at his humanness, and um, also at our limitedness in our own bodies as Christians, and largely at what it means that we as a church are the body of Christ together. Last week, Jamie did an awesome job of walking us through why Christ had to have a physical body um, and what that meant for him and for us on the cross. And today we're going to dig into what it means if we are actually part of the body of Christ himself to partner with him and participate in his suffering, which is a super light and fun topic. Um, When I got into studying the text, man, it's been a convicting couple of weeks for me, to say the least, Um, because it's not, there's like, sorry, is this too close to my face? Okay, but it's been a convicting couple of weeks because this is not something that comes naturally to me or easily to me. I like to seek comfort and security, and I like to avoid pain. Um, So I just want you to know I'm wrestling with this in real time, and I'm not, as we look at the scriptures today, know that I'm not teaching from a place of proficiency, but a place of lack, learning right alongside with you. Um, But we're going to start today, we're going to dig in and look at Luke 14, which is on page 1488 um, in your pew Bible. But Luke 14 verses 25 and 27. Now, I don't know what your Bible says, but my Bible has the heading for this section titled as the cost of being a disciple. The cost. There's a price we must weigh in being a disciple or being someone who follows Christ. So read with me here, Luke 14, 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now this teaching of Jesus is sandwiched between several parables that Christ teaches while eating, the text says, in the house of a prominent Pharisee. And Luke 14, 1, that chapter starts out saying that Jesus was being carefully watched. And so even in that setting and under those circumstances, he still honestly lays out what it looks like for us to be his disciple. Um, My husband Brent, who sometimes plays drums up here, is a triathlete. So we couldn't be more different. I can't carry a beat and I can't run 20 feet. Um, But he loves to compete in triathlons and I really do enjoy going to these events with him. Um, It's a really fun atmosphere to be a part of and I truly do love getting, it's a special thing for me to get a stand on the sidelines with my coffee in my hand and holler at him while he moves through through the transitions. Um, But what if Brent in some delusional state turned to me and said, hey Kels, you should do the next triathlon with me. 
It's one thing for me to support Brent and admire his example, but it's another thing entirely for me to follow it, to embody it. That would come at a great cost to me, and to him, honestly. Um, <laughs> but it's one thing for us to believe and even admire Christ in his crucifixion that we talked about last week. But it's another thing entirely for us to follow him into it. That would come at a great cost. It would look like Luke 14, where Jesus turns to those traveling with him and to his spectators, if you will, and is saying, do you love me more than the rest of this? Will you get a race bib, right? A little further down in this text, as Jesus concludes in verse 33, he says, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. He's not mincing words. He's not hiding the price tag. The gospel is good news. There's grace and blessings and hope and mercy. But Jesus is upfront about the cost of that good news. And it often is something that we wanna set to the side. I know I do. Um, But when we do that, we lose something that is central to the very good news and that is central to being a Christ follower. Becoming a Christian is not a prayer that we pray, but it's a complete and total surrender of our own desires and the flesh that we have been talking about. It's a surrender towards the higher purpose of God and his glory and bringing his kingdom here. It's saying, yes, I want to bury this flesh and put on your flesh. That is, that is what we're signing up for. It's a resurrection, absolutely, but it's also a death. This is why we get the phrase to be born again. So we're going to look at a couple more verses where Jesus taught on this in Matthew 16 is the first one on the screen here. I got to turn. Okay. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And then in Luke 9, 23, in the same teaching, this is how Luke wrote about it. He said, then he said, Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, I think we look at these verses um, from kind of two different perspectives and two different vantage points. Some of us look at those and we're like, That's pretty intense there, Jesus, Um, and rightly so. And then there's some of us that have maybe been around church for a really long time, and we kind of shrug our shoulders a little, and we say, yeah, take up your cross. I get that. I've heard that. And unfortunately, I can fall into that camp. This language doesn't shock me like it should, like it would have shocked the disciples. Um, Culturally at this time, if you saw someone carrying a cross, you knew they were a condemned man like Justin talked about. Um, carrying a cross would be the last action of their life. So Jesus here is asking us to participate in this in a spiritual sense, in a spiritual death. And Paul understood this when he wrote in Philippians 3, and the band already read this, but let's look at it again. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
When Paul wrote that he wanted to become like him in his death, he didn't mean he wanted to hang on a cross physically, but he meant he wanted to participate in the daily process of living out the mentality of servanthood, which he pretty clearly lays out in Philippians 2 right before that, where he talks about Jesus not having equality with God and making himself nothing and taking on the nature of a servant. That's what Paul is saying. I want to put that on. So if you really want to study the theology of cross-carrying, the book of Romans is a great place to do that. And um, it kind of all comes to a climax in Romans 12.1, where Paul reminds us that this dying to ourselves should be the primary action of our lives as Christians. So let's read that one. Romans 12.1, Paul again, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your truth excuse me, true and proper worship, a living sacrifice. But what does that actually mean to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? Paul goes into kind of what it looks like on a street level um, to serve God with these physical bodies that we have in this physical world. Um, and it, but it all hangs on this one concept of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. If we don't understand that, if we don't understand how to die to ourselves, then none of the service that we do in this world will be done with the right heart posture, will be done with the right attitude of spirit. So what does it mean to present our bodies? That's a really weird phrase that we don't use all the time. Um, I'm not a Greek scholar, which I know is probably real shocking to all of you. Um, but Andrew Davis in his book, An Infinite Journey, um, Annie Myers, I still have your book I borrowed a year ago. Thank you. Um, he breaks this word down, and so I'm going to try to kind of attempt it because I found it really helpful. Um, and so I'm going to kind of translate it for you. But the Greek here, where, where Paul says presenting our bodies, is used in the sense of presenting ourselves before a king. Okay? So to stand at the ready to do his bidding. Now, we don't live in a monarchy, um, and so we don't necessarily understand that. But I, this might tell you a little bit about my maturity level, but I thought of um, Kronk on Emperor's New Groove and Yzma. And so, how, and here, because I realize this is like a really old cultural reference now, but I have a picture if you don't know who I'm talking about. Let's put that up there. Okay, there you go. There's Kronk and Yzma. So Kronk was always standing at the ready to do whatever Yzma wanted him to do. I just kill it without a date cultural references. But, um, okay, let's take that down. That's weird. Um, this presenting here, though, okay, presenting is the same as what Jesus uses in Matthew 26, 53. So this is when he's in the garden. He's just been arrested. Um, and Peter... My, my favorite disciple, takes out his sword and cuts off the guard's ear, right? And Jesus says, hey, put your sword back. And then he says this in Matthew 26. He says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So that put at my disposal is the same as what Paul uses when he says to present your bodies. Put at my disposal, present bodies. So, the angels at his disposal are standing at the ready, willing and able to do whatever God asks. In the same way as that, we present our bodies to God. We are to dispatch our bodies to the king for his service. Ready, willing. This is what our bodies are to be used for. And Davis says that this is the first and greatest act of Christianity for our bodies to be ready for God to do what he wants through them. And if we go back to Paul's treatise on this in Romans, um, we see him say in Romans 6, 
kind of words it a little differently. He says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. The behavior of our body is the proof of who the master of it is. It's our willingness to take up our cross. And so we continually present our bodies over and over and over because this is not our natural bent, okay? We know this is counter to how we operate. And in a couple weeks, we're gonna look, we're gonna go more into this with the battle that we fight with our flesh. But if you don't recognize this, all you need to do is be around kids for a few minutes. And it's not because um, we don't do this as adults, but kids are just, we're better at hiding it than kids are, is what I wanna say. So the other day, um, my kids were eating lunch and they were having an in-depth discussion about insects, as one does while eating lunch. And one child said something about spiders, and another child instantly snapped at them and said, spiders aren't even insects. I'm like, oh, okay. So this is is what it means when our natural bent is to protect ourselves. Our natural bent is to show that we know everything, that we are in the right, okay? So we wanna make ourselves look great. The Old Testament refers to this, this is funny, I forgot that I was talking about this. The Old Testament refers to this as being stiff-necked. There is a lesson here for me today. Okay, I get it. Um, but this is our natural position, is it's not to die to ourselves. Um, at least it's not mine, which he's reminding me of, right? But I want my body to be at my disposal. So it's an actual and real thing that I have to do every day to open my hands, offer myself, and say, use every part of me. This is done, as Hebrews would say, once and for all, when we say we're gonna follow Christ, but it's also done, I hope you're seeing, daily, continuously. And the reason the self-death is a prerequisite to everything else in the Christian life is because it is only when we realize our need to die to ourself that we can turn towards a holy God. If we think we're doing all right, we will never be able to fully grasp the magnitude of who God is. Our sinfulness is our natural bent, right? It's the direction we're heading. We are, spiders aren't even insects all the time. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, the, heart, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And I love what the British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this. Um, he said, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Man, I feel that. I see it in my uh, marital disagreements in which Brent is right and not at fault and yet somehow we end that argument with me saying, okay, but I think we can both agree we're both right. So it's hard for me to see my sin and let alone admit it out loud, right? This is why the Bible so often refers to our sin as blindness. We can't see it. So where's the hope for us in that? Well, we don't realize we need to die to ourselves by looking inward because we won't see anything wrong. We 
do it by looking at a holy God. I love what C.S. Lewis said he, in his journey from atheism to Christianity. He said, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. So our hearts need to see what a holy heart looks like daily. We don't see our own crookedness by looking in the mirror. We see it when we look at the plumb line of God and his word every day. Now, this isn't a call to masochism. This is a call to repentance. It's a call to turning to God. We acknowledge our sin, and then we don't stay there. These daily deaths of repentance are what are remaking us. They're rebirthing us. They're renewing us. Because what Christ asks us to crucify, they aren't the eternal pieces. They are not the needed pieces. He's asking us to crucify the pieces that are standing in the way of us actually embodying him in this world. Now, my sister-in-law, um, just a couple days ago, was talking about this in terms of a controlled burn. She said she was driving down the road and saw all these fields that they were doing controlled burns in. Um, and her, she kept pointing them out, and finally her youngest son said, okay, what's a controlled burn? And her middle child, in all of his simple and profound wisdom, said, um, it's when they burn the weeds so the flowers can grow. Often, carrying our cross happens in private, in the difficult, painful, sometimes excruciatingly long process of unearthing the sin in our lives. It's in the controlled burn of our hearts where we, we ask to get rid of the weeds so the flowers can grow. And sometimes God makes his name great in these private moments of self-denial and repentance rather than in our virtuous public acts. Elizabeth Elliot um, was a missionary, and she knew a lot about suffering in her service towards God. Her husband and four other men were killed at the hands of the very people that they were trying to bring the good news to in the jungles of Ecuador. Um, she grieved, and then she took her infant daughter, and she went back to the jungle. And she finished the work with that tribal group that had never heard the name of Jesus. She suffered, then she looked to the cross, and she offered her body as a living sacrifice so that others might know the good news of Christ. And later she wrote this, If my life is broken when given to Jesus, it may be because pieces will feed a multitude when a loaf would satisfy only a little boy. As Christians, as cross-carrying people, we do expect suffering, but our confidence in the good news will look absolutely crazy to an unbelieving world because who in their right mind goes back, right? To the people that killed your husband. But it's our absolute hope in the reality of heaven and a holy God who awaits us there that allows us to pour ourselves out like Christ, broken pieces to feed a multitude. But our suffering for Christ must always be done in love. First Corinthians 13 says that we, sorry, we can give all away, but if we have not love, we gain nothing, we are nothing. It's our love that separates us. And because we belong to the very body of Christ himself, Isaiah calls him the suffering servant. We understand that suffering is in our very DNA when we are partnering with him. It's God's plan, life from death. I love Hebrews 5 that says that Jesus understood obedience from what he suffered. But like I said earlier, this isn't a call to massacre. And please hear me on this. We present ourselves to God, but it shouldn't be done in a way that we feel reluctant with 
with our tail between our legs, terrified of what's going to happen next. Um, because that's not what he's calling us into. We, um, this living sacrifice stuff is not reductionistic, but I think that's intend to do with this. And I've, this is something I've had to learn the hard way, and I feel like I've been taught wrong, and it's, it's damaging. But I think what we often do with this teaching is we can look at it, and we can see something as culturally hard, and see something as culturally easy, and we say, well, I have to do the hard thing, because that's what God calls me into, right? It's when we say, this is what I don't want to do, but it must be the thing God wants me to do because that's what he teaches. Missing the point entirely. The temptation here is to do, do something difficult so that others see that I'm holy. Or maybe a deeper thing is the temptation is to do something difficult so that God sees me as worthy of his love. And that's not what it looks like. Instead, it's being in that posture fully trusting that God's, God's, I got excited there for a second, guys. It's fully trusting that we are who God says we are, okay? Fully understanding that being his child means doing his will and then stepping into things. And this is the pivotal part that lead to peace and contentment no matter what happens circumstantially. So a person could be living in what we consider luxury with the right heart posture, doing great things for the kingdom. And a person could be pressing into culturally hard things with a cold heart that's leading them further into frustration and resentment and a harder heart. And so we present ourselves as living sacrifices. We must also remember that Jesus says his commands are not burdensome, his yoke is light, and we ask ourselves, In this thing I'm doing for God, is my heart getting softer or is it getting harder? And we look to Christ every day and we say, I'm at your disposal. And he does say that at some point that's going to lead to difficulty, but he also says in the midst of that we will have peace. It shouldn't be sucking the life out of us. So we're always checking our heart's posture and our cross carrying because it's a path that leads to joy, not losing heart and growing weary. So some of you might be in that space where that's what's happening and you need to step back and spend some time with God and say, is this really what he has for me here? But that verse, that not losing heart and growing weary, Jay may reference this last week, but let's look at Hebrews 12, one through three. And it's on page uh, 1717, 1717 in your um, pew Bible. But Hebrews 12, one through three says this, therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's just spent chapter 11 looking back at all these great people of faith, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He scorned the shame of the cross. He looked at it and he sneered and he said, nope, I'm gonna choose to go there 
because the joy that will be on the other side of it. And that joy was our salvation. And this, the joy set before him, is the mindset that we put on every day. We are to consider him, the text says. That means we're to look to him. We're to remember heaven. We live like we've counted the cost and we're betting it all, chips all in, right? And then we spur one another on to do the same. Now, I live in a farming community. Um, My neighbors have walked their goats down my street, um, and they have drive your tractor to school day. And I kid you not, this is a true story. I had another neighbor who texted one time and said, hey, I'm sorry if you're hearing all of this, but we're just getting the pigs ready for the fair. Um, So I say all of this so that you know that I have some skin in the game um, with this next analogy. But harvest doesn't happen unless first a lot of breaking occurs. Harvest doesn't happen unless first a lot of breaking occurs. So let me explain if perhaps you don't have goats walking down your street or the farmers aren't talking about the weather at the post office you go to. Um, but last, after last year's harvest is combined, okay, then they go out in the field and they till it up. They break everything up. And then it sits over the winter, and then in the spring, they go back out and they break up the ground again. And then they go out and they plant the seeds, and then the seeds go in the ground, and what happens to the seeds? They break open so that they can grow. And then over the summer, things grow, and then in the fall, harvest comes again, and they have to cut everything down. They break it all down again. So everything is cut and broken, and only then can it provide nourishment. Brokenness, 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 then harvest and nourishment. The people in Jesus' time were an agrarian people as well. And in John 12, 24, this is what he says to them. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Everyone benefits when we become more like Christ, when we're willing to fall to the ground and die in order that others might be nourished through the harvest. If we are embodying Christ, we must acknowledge what being his body in this world means. It means we are participating in this together. I was actually looking at the root um, of the roots of the word compassion, okay? And the C-O-N, the com part of compassion, means together or with, okay? And the pati, which is where we get passion from, means to suffer. So compassion literally translates to suffer together. And over and over in the Gospels, we saw Jesus, um, the, the Gospels would say that Jesus saw the crowd or whomever, and he had compassion on them. He was willing to suffer with them. And only our communion with a compassionate God will allow us to be compassionate like that. And we've been talking about this over the last few weeks, about the body of Christ and about the symbol and the actuality of his body here now, his church. This is the place he's given us to co-suffer to be compassionate with one another. He doesn't just ask us to co-suffer with people we like or that look like us or vote like us, and he doesn't just ask us to co-suffer by giving donations or letting our pastors handle the hard stuff. No, he actually asks us to be the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground. Why? Because in the body of Christ, we all share one thing, 
And it's this, remember in Romans 12, when Paul started talking about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, a few verses later, this is what he says. He says, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now the linchpin to understanding these verses is the phrase, in Christ that union with Christ, because in Christ is the thing that connects us all. And why is that? It's because in this union with Christ, everything Christ is, everything Christ has becomes ours. It's something we get to experience together in the church. We are one body. And so out of the costly sacrifice of offering his son, we get to um, experience healing together. We get to meet needs together. We get to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice together in Christ. We can participate and partner with Christ. Um, and, and we can't do that if we are not also participating and partnering with his very body here on this earth that he's given us. If we are in Christ, we are claiming membership with his body. And that's what we've been talking about today. We wanna be where his body is and do what his body is doing. Remember the root of compassion together with. We cannot co-suffer if we're choosing to isolate ourselves. Christ called us to baptize and to communion, and these are communal. There is something holy that happens in these acts, but I would argue that Christ also knew there was something holy in hands touching the cup and passing the bread to one another. There's something holy in hands holding another's shoulders as they lower them below um, the surface of the water and they, they're raised into restoration. We promise to follow Christ together when, we, when another baptizes us and we promise to remember the cost of what it cost that we can even be able to say we're in Christ when we take communion together. Jesus came and said he was the bread of life. Then he took the bread and he tore it, he broke it. And he told his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Bread made from broken wheat, a kernel that had fallen to the ground and allowed itself to feed a multitude. And then he took the wine made from broken grapes. Do you see the theme? And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And I love how Ann Voskamp describes communion. She said, um, it was an act made for our broken memories. We so easily forget not just what Christ did, but what he called us into, co-suffering with him, with each other. Boskamp also says that communion is not just an act so we remember, but an act so that we remember. It is an act that points us back to the cross as different members but one body and joins us together in our purpose. And to close, let's flip to John 6, um, which is page 1519 in your um, pew Bibles. And we'll read a chunk here. But this is shortly after Jesus has just fed the 5,000, actual bread. Then he walks on water, so some pretty miraculous things. And then his disciples have the audacity to ask him this, starting in verse 30. It says, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus looks past their empty stomachs and sees their empty souls and says, believe in me and your soul won't be empty because I will fill it. In our habitual sins, the ones that we return to over and over, they show us the places that we're trying to satisfy something inside of us. And we look out and we try to put different stuff in, but Jesus comes and says, I'm the bread that will fill it. And we know that bread is filling. Anyone who's been to Olive Garden knows this, right? You eat too much bread, you can't eat anything else. But we look to Christ to fill us and it sets us free from depending on something or someone else to do that job. But what does this have to do with taking up our cross, with offering ourselves as a living sacrifice? It's what makes it all possible. C.S. Lewis said in reference to the things we look to to fill us, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. If we believe Christ to be totally satisfying, the bread of life that fills us and frees us, he reminds us of the joy set before us so that we can scorn the shame of this world and partner with him. And let's finish here in John 6, verses 48 through 51. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus is the better manna. Jesus is the broken kernel given for us. And all we must do is look to him for full satisfaction. And we eat the bread that he's offering us by internalizing and identifying with Christ in his suffering. We take on his flesh and we die to our own. And once fully satisfied and freed in that meal of Christ alone, we are then set free to love others as generously and compassionately as co-sufferers as Christ did. This filling, satisfying love leads us to an outpouring of love that looks different in this world. And it could lead to discomfort, can lead to suffering, but full of the bread of life, eyes set on the joy before us, we rejoice. We're at, we're at peace no matter our circumstances, ready to break ourselves wide open in order to feed a multitude the bread of life. And we get to end our service today with this very symbol, the symbol of his broken body made for our broken memories. And in taking the bread and the cup, we remember the body of Christ together today. So let's offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, willing to be a kernel of wheat ripe for the harvest in our brokenness. But if this is all brand new to you, just know this. There aren't magic words you need to say to be a Christ follower, but rather you just count the cost of what it means to follow him. And then you just push your chips all in, betting it all, and putting yourself at his disposal 
being filled with the most satisfying and freeing bread of life. And if that's a decision that you want to make today, I'll be up here during communion. I would love to talk to you or pray with you. Um, or maybe you want to participate next week. We're having a baptism ceremony. Um, if, you, if that's something you've never done and you want to participate in that actual symbol of being dead to ourselves and raised in Christ, I would love to talk to you. Um, there'll be servers up here with the broken bread and the broken grapes um, to serve you as a, as a reminder of that. And there'll be a gluten-free option um, down here, and you'll be dismissed by row. But pray with me today as we head into this time together. God, today may we remember that we must look to you, a holy God, to expose the blind spots of our sinfulness. And in doing so, help us repent in humble ways that allow us to put ourselves at your disposal living sacrifices dead to our own flesh, united with yours. God, as we leave our pews together, receive communion together, worship together, may we be reminded that we get the beautiful opportunity to co-suffer together as a body of believers for the life of the world, like Jesus said. May we consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing you, our Lord. We want to know you, Christ. Yes, to know the power of your resurrection and participate in your sufferings, becoming like you in death. May we press on to take hold of that for which you took hold of us.